In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. I was in our church library this week and uh, doing a little bit of rearranging. I pulled out this small paperback book and it fell apart in my hands. The pages came out of the cover and uh, the pages themselves began to separate. The glue has totally disintegrated in it. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to do the work of repairing it. I'll take a look at it and see what kind of a book it is. I read the first couple of uh, pages and was transfixed. The author, uh, Cecil Rose, uh, the title is When Man Listens, is uh, writing about a group called the Oxford Group, which started in the 20s and 30s and was really part of a worldwide uh, Christian renewal movement uh, based on confession people coming together in their homes and confessing their sins to one another. Very popular, right? We see a lot of that. Part of the East African revival uh, movement and what led to um, a flowering of Christianity there as well. Uh, so they would come together in house groups, they would confess their sins to one another, and then they would wait upon the Lord. And the idea was, listen to the Lord, listen for His direction, and then do it. See how complex that is? And so uh, Cecil is writing here, Mr. Rose is writing about how to listen to the Lord and following this uh, program of the Oxford Group. And he talks about the, um, the fact that this is the only possible healing of our world. And he talks about how um, you know, the, the institutions of the world had you know, uh, broken down. Education wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Politics weren't doing what they were supposed to do. World government, uh, science had let us down. Uh, technology had let us down. And when I read those things, I thought, when, when was this book published, you know? Uh, 1936. And uh, published four times between, republished four times between 1936. This edition uh, was printed in 1937, which explains the condition of the glue. Uh, and so, of course, I repaired it. And uh, I think that he is getting at something that is profound and uh, which the church has to be reminded of time and again. Um, that confession that leads to repentance... And the, the love of uh, the, the Christian church in response to what God has given us. And his point is that, that the Christian life isn't about following rules. It's not about saying, oh, I'm supposed to do this and do this and do this. The Christian life is about responding to God's love. And of course, we respond according to the commandments. We respond according to a righteous, upright life. But it's a response uh, to God's love for us. And this, I think, is an important point as we read the lessons this morning, which are focused on the commandments and uh, how they're presented to us in the scriptures. This is the topic of Moses' uh, passage here this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, the summary of the law. And you'll remember that Deuteronomy is that fifth book of the Pentateuch. It's where Moses has brought the people of God to the eastern edge of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over, and Moses has stopped them. And he said, okay, I'm going to summarize for you. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to tell you a second time what it is that God has told you to do. And that's uh, really the title, Deuteronomy. It's the second time he's telling them the law. And so in this second... Uh, re-explication of the law he tells them the heart of the law is that God is one God is one 
And this is something that we can dedicate our lives to. There's a couple of important points. One is, we can only really apprehend one thing. The human consciousness can only apprehend one thing at a time. We can only hold one thing in consciousness at a time. Sometimes we try to do multiple things, we can't. The consciousness can apprehend one thing. And the problem we often have is uh, dedicating ourselves to something because, as Mr. Rose points out, so many of our institutions have failed us. There's so many things in our life that have broken. As the Collect of the Day says, there's so many things about this life that are passing away, right, that are rotting and are destroyed. So what can we apprehend? What can we think upon? What can we reflect upon that is eternal and always good? And of course, that's God. And this is a very important kind of prayer that we're supposed to engage in. Sometimes we jump right to prayers of intercession, heal this person, or uh, prayers of thanksgiving, thank you for the good things that you've given me. The first prayer that we need to have is contemplation of God. We have to contemplate Him. We have to be reminded of who He is before we can enter into relationship with Him, before we can come before Him with anything else. And so when we talk about the daily responsibility that all Christians have, that we're supposed to daily be in prayer, we're supposed to daily read our scriptures, that we have a daily walk that we're supposed to undertake with discipline, part of that discipline has to be a contemplation of God Himself. And the wonderful thing, the beautiful thing about that contemplation is, we'll never get to the end of Him. We'll never tire of him. We'll never find that he's uh, uh, too much or, or that we're not enough. We're going to find always that, um, that he is so much more beautiful than we can imagine, so much more wonderful uh, than we can know. And uh, he is constantly going to reveal to us uh, different facets of his character, different facets of who he is. And we can spend eternity, indeed we're called to spend eternity contemplating the mystery of God himself. And when we me meditate upon him, we'll find beauty everlasting, we'll find joy beyond understanding, we'll find peace that we could not imagine. We will find a way and a place in which to dedicate our lives. And indeed, we could say we could stop there. We could stop with the meditation on God being one. Moses does something very interesting. He says, um, once we hear that God is one, we're supposed to love him. And the, the Hebrew word for love is a very interesting word. We spend a lot of times in the church talking about the Greek words for love and, and the, the different Greek words that talk about different kinds of love that we can have. It's a very important thing because we misuse the word so much in English. Uh, when we say that we're supposed to love God, you know, we just skip over that, don't we? Well, yeah, I love God. Well, I'm, of course I'm supposed to love God. And I love chocolate, and I love those drapes, and I love you, and I love going to the show. And Right? That's how we talk about love. So we talk about all that kind of love, and then we get to God. It's like, sure, I, I love God too. And it doesn't even get close to the experience or the exercise, the discipline that we're supposed to have in loving God. The Hebrew word is, um, like so many ancient languages, spelled for us in pictographs, picture letters. And the first picture in the word Hebrew is hands upraised in thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful gift. 
So the first thing that we do in love is we raise our hands and we say thank you with full gladness of our hearts. The second picture and the second letter of the word love in Hebrew is the tent. And the tent is so important in the ancient world and in the ancient cultures, especially in Israel. The tent is the tribe. And the tribe, of course, is everything. The tribe protects us, right? The tribe uh, provides for us. The tribe owns the land that we farm. The tribe has the boundaries that we understand as providing for us our identity. And within the tribe, then, we have other um, gifts that God has given us. So the first gift that we're given is the gift of our identity, of our family. And, of course, for us, we can think of our great-grandparents and our, um, our aunts and uncles and our extended families of cousins. These are gifts that we've been given. And then, of course, we're given the gift of our own parents and siblings. We're given the gift of uh, our spouses. We're given the gift of our children. So we give thanks with hands uplifted for the gifts, the essential life-sustaining gifts of the tent. Where we have our, our provision, our protection, our identity, and our deepest gift, gifting. And then the Lord adds himself to that. He says, love me that way. Which should stop us and say, that's incredible. The Lord is saying that we're supposed to give thanks for him as the gift of the tent. In other words, he wants to dwell with us. He wants to live with us and dwell with us in the tent. He wants to tabernacle with us and be a gift. He wants to give himself to us in that tent of family. And he wants us to give thanks for that gift. And of course, this is the message that Moses says over and over again, that the prophets say over and over again, that when we see it fulfilled in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he comes to tabernacle with us and to gift himself to us, we have a full understanding of what God is saying here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that he wants to dwell with us and be a gift that we would give thanksgiving for. And that's the expression of love that we're supposed to have for God. And indeed, we have to practice it every day and we'll never come to an end of that thanksgiving. This is the understanding that we're supposed to have in this second temple period that Jesus is born into, where he is going into Jerusalem to the temple where this worship is taking place. And it's that love of God that he is pointing to. Now, when he gets to Jerusalem, you'll remember this is Mark now chapter 12. So uh, last week we were in chapter 10. We skipped chapter 11 because that's the passage that we read in uh, uh, Palm Sunday and that we read during the, the Passion Week. Right, Chapter 11 is where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and we have the hosannas and they lay down um, all of the, the palm fronds and he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he cleanses the temple. Right, And then he goes back out to Bethany. You remember he's staying with Mary and Martha and with their brother Lazarus in that suburb of Jerusalem, Bethany. And so now he's established his home base in Bethany and he's spending Holy Week now going in and out. He's going into Jerusalem during the day. He's going to the temple. 
he's preaching, and then he's going back out and he's staying in Bethany. So in chapter 12, that's where we are. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, he's cleansed the temple, and he's meeting now in the temple precincts, and he's being barraged with questions. He's really on trial uh, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're really acting here like the Democrats and the Republicrats, right? It's just, can I catch you and show that you're on their side, the bad people's side, right? That's the practice that they have. Let me see if I can catch you and show that you're a bad guy. And so they're doing this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, over and over and pitting each other against each other and trying to catch Jesus in the middle. And a scribe comes to Jesus and he's coming with this question about the the law. And what they had found is that they had uh, organized the law and they had counted the number of laws and statutes that they found in Moses. And they found there were about 618 of them. And then the question was, which one should be the first? And how should we rank order them, right? Because I need to make sure I do one through 10 and then maybe I'll do 11 through 12 and so they'd gotten really fixated on this organizing of the law in this way and so this scribe is trying to catch Jesus in this kind of theological political debate here and Jesus of course will not be caught and he summarizes this expression of God's love for us and of the love that we're supposed to have for him in Deuteronomy chapter 6 right he quotes just what we read from But then Jesus enters in to this tent analogy, something so much bolder. He then quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Can you imagine? Neighbors? Neighbors are the worst, right? These people don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't eat like us, they don't dress like us, they don't drive like us, they don't vote the way they're supposed to vote, they don't think the way they're supposed to think. These people are a mess, right? And Jesus is saying that you're supposed to give thanks for them the same way that you do for your tent, for your family, for God. That's crazy. That's the love that he's come to express. And he said that I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for all of the world. For the neighbor too. And that when that family is made and we are one family in Christ, that we're going to give thanks... For the gift of our neighbor, the same way that we do for God and the people in our tent. If that isn't radical, I don't know what is. And you'll notice that when Jesus finishes that teaching, they had no more questions. What more questions could you have? Jesus has now put an end to what they were doing in the temple. Because what they were doing in the temple was they were perpetually sacrificing for that group. And Jesus says, I'm about to sacrifice for the whole world. And what we read in the letter to the Hebrews is, he says, you once practiced a Levitical priesthood with the tribe of Aaron and the Levites under him for this group of people here. And what God has done is he has come and he has become the high priest in the line of Melchizedek 
right? Because we're supposed to read that Jesus is the priest and say, wait a minute, I thought he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He's not. He's from the tribe of Judah. The writer to the Hebrews says that's because he is in the order of Melchizedek, which means he has no beginning and no end. And his sacrifice is going to be for creation. For all of creation. And he is going to perpetually bring salvation to all those... What does it say here in Hebrews chapter 7? Verse 25. He's going to save to the uttermost those who draw near. Draw near. You can think of that phrase, draw near, the same way we've been talking these many weeks about stand firm. And you remember this one? Hold fast. Hold fast to the rigging of the ship that we're in because there's a storm outside. Draw near is the same phrase. Salvation is for all those who would hold fast and draw near to Christ because He is offering a sacrifice for the whole world and we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss that. The question is, how do we draw near? What, what kind of drawing near is He talking about? Drawing near is that we're supposed to be participating and that sacrifice participating in the priesthood of Christ every day. We are a priesthood of all believers. When you leave your door in the morning, after having contemplated God, read the scriptures, practiced our prayers of intercession, you are leaving your door every morning as a priest in the church of Christ. Our job as priests is to give thanksgiving over our food, to give thanksgiving over our neighborhoods, our state, our country, to offer prayers of intercession for our family and for our government, to be offering blessing, and to be giving thanks for those neighbors. That's how we participate as priests in God's church. The Oxford group was an amazing group. The East African revival and those associated transformations of the church was incredible. They went to many different continents and Mr. Rose in his writing of When Man Listens I think thought that there was going to be um, a real institution of the Oxford group and that's really not uh, what happened to that uh, ministry. A couple of key points, confessing publicly and waiting upon the Lord to be obedient in faith took hold with a small group of men who were trying to kick alcoholism in the 1930s and started calling themselves uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And before Bill W. published the big book, he handed out this one. I don't think that's what Mr. Rose was intending when he wrote that book. But look how God used him. Look at the transformation of our society due to those groups of people gathering together and confessing their sin and turning to God for strength. Look at what will happen when we're obedient in faith. The world will be changed. And in ways that will surprise us. There will be surprises. Because we will never come to the end of God and His grace.